Well, we are back after Christmas. Hope everybody had a great Christmas time. Uh, and so before Christmas, if you recall, if you were here, uh, we started through a series through the book of Daniel. And so we went through the first uh, seven chapters of Daniel, took a break for Christmas to do kind of Advent sermon series. Well, now we're back. And so we're back in Daniel chapter 8. We're going to finish up Daniel in the next few weeks. And... Uh, uh, then move on. But we're here at Daniel chapter 8, so that's where we're going to pick up. If you'll rec- let me kind of refresh your memory really quick, uh, Daniel 1 through 6 is kind of the, the story of Daniel that most of us are familiar with, like, you know, the, the eating fruits and veggies and not meat and still growing strong and uh, the fiery furnace and uh, the statue idols don't bow to and the, and the lion's den, all that stuff. And then in chapter 7, he picks up these prof- prophetic visions. And they're not chronological. It's not like one through six happened and then the prophecies came later. He goes back and he shows you all these visions and prophecies that he's having throughout his life. Okay? Uh, And this one happens to take place during the reign of Belshazzar, which was the second king he uh, served under. And so this is a flashback. It's a flashback and a flash forward, awkwardly enough. Um, And so so that's kind of what's going on. If you remember in chapter 7 from a few weeks ago, I know it's been a while, uh, prophecy, there was a lot of beasts, a lot of crazy things happening, but the big thing there was that the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, and so it ended on on a good note. Really these two chapters, I mean the whole thing's got to be taken together, but these two chapters really got to go together, and so we're going to kind of use that as the backdrop for where we're going. So that said, Daniel chapter 8, here's my question, what makes for a good story. What makes a good story? If you go back in time to time of the Greeks who have who are known for their myths, known for their legends, their Greek myths have stood the test of time. We're still telling these uh, old stories today. Uh, they knew what made for a good story. We now have a name for it. We call it the hero's journey, the hero's journey. The hero's journey is a template, you might have learned it in school, it's a template that virtually every story takes, whether you're reading a book, watching a show, watching a movie, they all pretty much follow this hero's journey model, right, where the hero goes on some sort of adventure, some sort of quest, some sort of thing, Uh, uh, he's victorious over some sort of crisis that's going to happen, and along the way, he is changed by the crisis and his overcoming of that thing, and is made different, transformed in the end. And what is it that makes that journey worth it? What makes all of the pain and all of the struggle and all of the hardship worth it is the ending. How that character grew, how they changed, how they finally stepped into who they were always meant to be and how now they're going to live happily ever after. If we were to read or watch a story about someone who who had their act together, That everything was good, everything was fine, that they experienced no hardship, no trial, they had nothing to overcome, and they weren't changed by anything because they were already awesome to begin with. Well, for one, it would be a very short story, and for two, it would be a completely uninteresting, boring story that nobody would watch. And it really wouldn't be a story at all, at least not one worth telling. Why? Because it would ring hollow. It would ring hollow, it would ring false, because it doesn't match our experience. Our experience, our stories, is the story of the hero's journey. That we are all living this grand adventure. And our adventure is full of trials and tribulations. 
evil forces that need to be killed and put to death. We are all on a journey, to, to, and we're growing, and we're changed by our journey and how we overcome trials. We are not the people that we used to be. Right? We can all say that. We're not the people that we used to be. And we're still not the people that we're going to be when this journey finally comes to an end. It is the reason that stories uh, like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and Narnia and even Pride and Prejudice so captivate our hearts, so captivate our imaginations. Because as we watch them, we realize that we are Luke Skywalker. We are Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet. We are Harry. We are this person living these stories, going through these challenges, going through these trials, seeking love, seeking fulfillment, seeking something, overcoming, being changed in the end. And our stories are stories worth telling precisely because along the way we have been and are being forged into something more beautiful than before being forged through the fires of that journey. And so today as we look at Daniel chapter 8, this prophecy, a vision of the future, a vision of the story of history, God's story, and what details, the details in the story, what they mean for the people of God, what they mean for us. This vision takes place, like I said, during, back during the reign of Belshazzar, the second guy Daniel served under. Who Remember, this is the guy that was going to be judged for throwing the big party and the handwriting on the wall situation. That's this guy. Let's read together. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 3. Daniel writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he pens the very words of God. He says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which had been standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even toward the host of heaven, and some of, it, the host, some of its stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as the great as the prince of the hosts, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will, th it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one who said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? And the giving over of the sanctuary of the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its righteous state. This is the word of the Lord. The rest of the chapter, the angel Gabriel, interestingly enough, we've just been talking about Gabriel the past couple weeks. The angel Gabriel gives 
to Daniel the interpretation, which I'm going to explain to you. And he basically, uh, in this vision, God is telling Daniel what is going to happen from a geopolitical perspective over the next hundred years or so. He is telling Daniel what nations are going to take over, what is going to happen next, and what are those implications of these nations that take over, what are the implications for what that means for the people of Israel, for God's people. So quickly, uh, here is what God is revealing in the vision uh, for what for, for, is for now for, is history to us. But for Daniel, this was a sneak peek into the future. So this is going to be kind of a quick history lesson for you. Um, so remember, currently the ruler uh, over which Daniel and Israel are exiles and been taken captive is the Babylonians, right? But this vision shows that that is not going to last long. So he has this vision of a ram with two horns, but one is longer than the other one. This ram represents, as Gabriel tells us, the Medo-Persian Empire. This empire becomes a powerhouse, and it takes north, southeast, west, north, southwest, and it takes over Babylon as the new superpower in the world. Then, this goat with one horn in the middle, so I guess it's actually like a cross between a goat and a unicorn somehow, shows up and attacks the ram. Now, you might think, like I do, that a goat has no chance against a ram. Right? That would not seem like, it would, it would seem to lose. Um, <clears throat> I would think so too. But this goat is a unicorn hybrid. And it says that he moves at great speed. And it says he never touches the ground, that he's moving so fast. And so he, this goat, unicorn hybrid, takes out the ram. <coughs> this goat, unicorn hybrid, takes out the ram. And this goat, so if, if the ram is Medo-Persia, the ram represents Greece and Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire. The, the reason is the speed shows us how fast Alexander the Great would take over the world by age 32. And so this goat who's going so fast he doesn't touch the ground, he's, he's taken off and he takes over everything. Is Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Then this goat's one horn, his unicorn horn, is broken off at the height of his power just as Alexander the Great Oh, man, you're so kind, man. Thank you, Nathan. Give, give some snaps for Nathan. Been sleeping at the hospital last night. It was not fun. Ah, he could hear it in my throat. Um, so one horn is broken off. Alexander the Great dies, or is going to die, um, at, at an early age. And replaced by that one horn is four horns, which will, as history tells us, will be the four generals that take over for Alexander the Great. Um, and so they'll, they'll kind of take over, which will eventually become Rome. But from those four horns comes a smaller horn, which grows in power, and it goes east and south, specifically toward Israel. This represents a guy named uh, Antiquit, oh, now I'm going to mess his name up, Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, who goes down, takes over Israel, and when, it, when the text says that he throws down the starry host to the ground, that is a reference to Abraham's children who would be as descendant as the stars are in the heaven, right, from Genesis. And so basically saying that this guy's going to go to Israel and he's going to destroy the people of God. He's going to murder and kill and vanquish the people of God. This guy, it says he's going to stop the sacrifices in the temple, which history tells us that he does. He stops the sacrifices in Jerusalem. He defiles the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar, which was unclean, and they put it, he brings that into the altar to sacrifice it. He slaughters thousands of infants if they were circumcised, like the Jews were. He slaughters them. He puts a statue of Zeus in the temple 
uh, and he cuts up all of the scrolls he can find of the Old Testament, cuts them up and destroys them. This vision that Daniel gets, he, he says, he asks, how long is this going to last? This, this Antiochus Epiphanes, how long is this going to last? It says 2,300 days or six years. And to the day, that is exactly how long that this guy goes down and reigns over Israel and, and, and messes them up. And on December 25th, weirdly enough, uh, this guy has died. He's, he, he just, the text says he'll die by no human hand. It's because he, di- he dies of a disease to his bowels, which is also predicted, right? And on December 25th, the temple is rededicated and restored, which is why Jews and even Jesus celebrate Hanukkah. Or in the Bible, it's often referred to as the Feast of Dedication. When this guy was taken out and the temple restored. What is amazing is that what we know as history, Daniel sees before happening in incredible detail. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean for Daniel, for the people of God, and for us? Number one, in God's story, he allows evil to have its day. In God's story, he allows evil to have its day. How does this vision affect Daniel? As he receives it, how does it affect Daniel and Israel? After Daniel sees this vision, his response is physical. He is physically sick and disturbed. He is stressed. He is anxious. He's afraid. He can't get out of the bed for days, he says. Why? Because now he knows that his people who are currently in exile, right? They're slaves and in exile and away from their home. That this exile is not going to end anytime soon. They're not going to return home anytime soon. That ruler after ruler will take ownership of them and oppress them and hurt them. And then their temple is going to be defiled and their people are going to be slaughtered. And everything's going to get messed up even more. It is bad news for Daniel and the people of God. It is more suffering, more evil, more uh, hard stuff. And so it's hard for Daniel to stomach this. He's getting this bad news. And so he is having to wrestle with these realities in the same way that we do. That evil is having its day. That suffering and pain and, and difficult days are not short in number, but they just keep coming. That hard days keep happening. That evil is raining. That suffering and pain aren't going away, any, going away anytime soon. You know, I do not have to convince you that the world is evil. We all know it. We know it deep in our bones. You in this room know what it is like to suffer. You know what it is like to lose a loved one. Uh, You know what it is like to watch friends get in a car and get in a wreck and die. This just this past week, a longtime friend of fellowship got in a bad car wreck, been in the hospital, and finally died. We know what it's like to grieve that and suffer that. We know what it is like to, to watch Jerry Burleson, a faithful member of this church for a long, long, long time, battle a disease and then finally lose his life. We know what it's like to ache and suffer those things. We know you know what it's like to have members of your own family die. You know what it's like to get that phone call of the test came back, yes, you have cancer. You know what it's like to, to, to receive bad news and to walk and to struggle and to hurt. You know what it's like to see families broken, children and families ripped apart. You know what it's like to see people's lives destroyed by drugs and by violence. You've seen, even in all these past couple years, families ripped apart over political differences as we fight and rip each other to shreds because we disagree on something. 
I spent one day at Children's Hospital. Actually, I spent two days. But when I wrote this, I spent one day. I spent one day at Children's Hospital this weekend. And my guy was just going in for some some routine tonsils taken out. But as you walk down the hall of Children's Hospital and you can't help but peek into the rooms as you walk by or see the people in the hallway and you see children, little bitty guys and girls hooked up to IVs and, and beat things beeping and, and oxygen on their face and, and parents who are completely drained and look hopeless. It's the most miserable place to be, walking through there watching all these people just suffer and hurt. And, e- and even just me watching this week as we have a routine surgery and then we go home and then Eli, who has his tonsils taken out, just blood just starts gushing out of his mouth. And he's choking on it. And we don't know what to do. We just call 911. We know suffering and evil and difficulty and the curse of sin are real and this world is broken. When Daniel describes himself as being physically sick after receiving this news that things are only going to get worse before they get better, you probably know what it is like to have a physical response to bad things happening. You have cried until their tears would not come anymore. You have carried the stress of situations in your body until it gives you a migraine or a headache or you, you're, you're all knotted up in your muscles. You have carried it in such a way that when it was over, you had to run and throw up. It is normal to have a physical response from bad things happening or bad news. We know what evil is and we experience it all the time in this world. But there is a side point here worth making about this idea. When we talk about pain and suffering, when we talk about injustice and evil, when we talk about horrible bad things happening, we have a word for it. We call it evil. But evil is not something we get to define ourselves. Evil is something God has revealed to us. Evil is not something that we just get to define what it is. It's not evil for me. God tells us what evil is. You see, if we get to define evil for ourselves, then it becomes a meaningless thing, right? It becomes meaningless because Hitler can kill millions and millions of Jews and call it good, call it great. Who's to say otherwise? While someone else can, uh, can, can see someone taking care of a poor person and call it evil. If we get to decide what is evil, then it becomes meaningless, but we know evil is real Because someone outside of our existence, someone removed from us, has told us what evil is and what goodness is. It therefore becomes not a subjective thing that is true for me or true for you. It becomes an objective reality. It becomes an absolute truth. Because God exists, we can define what is good and what is evil. We can define what is right and what is wrong. We can define what is joyful and what is suffering. Not based on my experience or my opinion, but based on what God says. Without God, everything becomes just another thing. Without God. To kill someone is simply survival of the fittest. To steal something is simply to be more powerful or to be more clever. But because we know evil is real, and it's not just another thing that happened to me, it's not random, but rather it has a moral significance, then we can know what our true enemy is. We can know what is wrong in the world. We can know what to hate. We can know what to grieve over. We can know what not to stand for. 
But if God is allowing evil, if God is allowing evil to have its day now, the question becomes why? Why is he allowing evil? That's the million-dollar question. We already said that any story worth being told is a story that takes place through trials, through struggles, through things that they must overcome. And our stories are no different. But why is it that we 